Good morning, everyone. My name's Raj, as you probably know, or some of you know. If you're new here, welcome. You're really welcome here this morning. Today we're going to be reading, we're going to be continuing in our sermon series. It's not long now, we're nearly coming to the end. Um, uh, Matthew's Gospel, Come the Revolution, and this morning we're going to be reading. We're going to get straight into it, actually. We're going to be reading chapter... um, Matthew 26, uh, verses 47 to 67. It's a big chunk this morning, a bit like me. A big chunk this morning, and, um, and I hope you can follow. But I just want us to get a gist of this whole story, because it's heating up, okay? So let's read, shall we? While he was speaking, Judas... One of the twelve arrived. With him was a large crowd armed with swords uh, and, and clubs sent from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer, Judas, had arranged a signal with them. The one I kiss is the man. Arrest him. Going at once to Jesus, Judas said, Greetings, Rabbi, and kissed him. So Jesus replied, do what you came for, friend. Then the men stepped forward, seized Jesus, and arrested him. With that, one of Jesus' companions, we know it to be Peter, reached out for his sword, drew it out, and struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. Well done, Peter. Put your sword back in its place, said Jesus to him, for all who draw the sword will die by the sword. Do you think I cannot tell, call on my father and he will not put at my disposal, disposal more than 12 legions of angels? We heard about one this morning. But how then would the scriptures be fulfilled, says Jesus, that say it must happen this way? In that hour, Jesus said to the crowd, am I leading a rebellion that you have come out with me? with swords and clubs to capture me. Every day I sat in the temple courts teaching and you did not arrest me. But this has all taken place, that the writings of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples deserted him and fled. Those who had arrested Jesus took him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the teachers of the law and the elders had assembled. But Peter followed him at a distance, right up to the courtyard of the high priest. He entered and sat down with the guards to see the outcome. The chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for false evidence against Jesus so that they could put him to death. But they did not find any, though many false witnesses came forward. Finally, two came forward and declared this fellow said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. Then the high priest stood up and said to Jesus, are you not going to answer? What is this testimony that these men are bringing against you? But Jesus remained silent. The high priest said to him, I charge you under oath by the living God, tell us if you are the Messiah, the Son of God. You have said so, Jesus replied. But I say to all of you, 
From now on, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his clothes and said, He has spoken blasphemy. Why do you need any more witnesses? Look, now you have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? He is worthy of death, they answered. Then they spit in his face and struck him with, his, with their fists. Others slapped him and said, ha, Prophesy to us, Messiah. Who hit you? Let's pray. Yeah, thank you, Lord, for the detail of these final days, these final hours. I thank you, Lord, that you are drawing us into this story, this story, true story, that changes lives. And the detail is to help us to know why you, God, went to the cross. Why you, God, the creator of the heavens and the earth, died for us. And we pray, Holy Spirit, this morning as we look at this story from a bit of a distance, that we'll see the God of the ages that we've been singing about. The God seated in glory. The God who is majestic and ruling and reigning. We ask for that intimacy and closeness with you this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. I don't know about you, but these last few chapters are sad. I think they are even though they are culminating in the greatest event in history, there is a pathos here, a sense of, did it really have to happen this way? In fact, Matthew deliberately writes his book to the Jewish people, filling it with prophecies that are meant to have the effect, hold on, hold on a minute, readers. This shouldn't have come as a surprise to you. God has been hinting this throughout all of history. That's what Matthew's doing. Matthew's gospel pictures Jesus as the new Moses who has come to establish God's kingdom. There's clues all over. Pharaoh's, Pharaoh killing the boys, Herod killing the boys. They spend time in the wilderness, both of them. They both bring foundational teen teaching, the Ten Commandments. Jesus brings the Sermon on the Mount. Both operate prolifically with miracles. Moses' ministry ends at the Jordan. Jesus begins there as he comes up out of the water of baptism. Moses dies before the people of God entered the promised land. And Jesus, well, I don't want to spoil the story for you. But not just that not just the new Moses. Matthew emphasizes another big theme. He is the son. Jesus is the son of David, who Nathan the prophet declares, your house and your kingdom will endure forever. Your throne will be established forever. In our passage today, Jesus says, Jesus says, I say to all of you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. He's referring to the Daniel 7 vision. Way back, one like the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. Of course, this is blasphemy to him because he's saying, I am God. He's referring 
to Psalm 110.1. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. And there's loads more. Matthew refers to prophecies about Jesus' birthplace, how he would be born to a virgin, how he escapes to Egypt, avoiding the wrath of Herod. Herod's slaughter of the infants in Bethlehem, about John the Baptist and the wilderness, about Jesus' ministry base in Capernaum, about how he would speak in parables, how he would ride into Jerusalem on a donkey, how he would suffer rejection and betrayal with 30 pieces of silver, and, of course, his tragic death. Oops, gave it away. We haven't really concentrated on this as we've moved through Matthew's account. But just this week in bed, actually, I looked all of these prophecies up, and it brought me to tears, actually. As I'm getting older, I'm getting a little bit more emotional about these things. Films, particularly, can't stop blubbering. I want to encourage you, Jubilee, to spend half an hour, 45 minutes. Gavin sent, sent it in the weekly bulletin. Uh, on Friday, last Friday, he may send it again. I want you to look at these prophecies, read them out, let them soak in so that you know that this, God, this story has greater significance to you, your family, your friends, your colleagues, and everyone God's put, God puts in your way. But the question I want to ask today, and it kind of fits in with all this, as we stand back a little and deal with the whole of these final hours much more broadly, is who done it? Who done it? I don't know if you like who done it films or books or TV series. If you're not familiar with the term who done it, um, well, these are complex, plot-driven detective kind of stories in which working out who who did the killing is the main focus. Who done it? Things like Silent Witness, where you're trying to fit the clues together and wondering, who was it? Or Line of Duty, who's H, the top person in the establishment causing corruption and mayhem? Who is it? My favorite whodunit of all happened in 1980. This was was on the prime time TV soap opera of the late 70s, running right till the 90s, actually. Hey? Dallas. Gavin remembers it well. This, this was about the rich Texan oil family called the Ewings. Da, 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 da. No, 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 no. They were always scheming, weren't they, and feuding. There was lots of relational tensions and betrayals and plots and schemes. It was gripping. Me and my mom, I remember, would watch it week in, week out, sitting together in front of the gas fire. And the pinnacle of that series was 1980, when the villain of the whole story, the head of Ewing Oil, J.R. Ewing, was shot. And it was all over the papers, wasn't it? And it was all over the TV. People were talking about it in the shops and in the streets. Who shot JR? Who shot JR? And when they found out one day, many, many months later, actually, we went, oh, never, no way, really? 
I did anyway. <laughs> and I think Matthew is kind of doing the same here as he describes Jesus' final hours on a background of prophetic clues. And so I want to explore this little, little this morning and, and, put, and put to you that there are at least, at least four possibilities, four candidates for who done it. Firstly, the Bible says Satan was a key player in the death of Jesus. And I'm deliberately mentioning him first. And the reason for this is that often we can get caught up in the details of what happens in our lives and forget there is an age-old enemy that is always trying to bring Jesus down. And often he does it in ways that are in the background through whispering lies and scheming and plotting. And often in Western Christianity, because we think we're so much more enlightened and scientific and reasoned about life's goings-on, we miss him altogether. Andrew Del Banco, an American professor, he's not actually a Christian, he's a self-described secular guy, he puts it perfectly, he writes this, the repertoire or the diversity of evil out there has never been richer, yet never have our responses been so weak. Evil tends to recede in the background hum of modern life. We cannot readily see the perpetrator, so the work of the devil is everywhere, but no one knows where to find him. Early on in this chapter, verse 16, it, it tells us that Judas went into the chief priests and asked, what are you willing to give me if I hand Jesus over to you? And the gospel writer, Luke, really interestingly adds, at that point, Satan entered Judas. Little lines you can easily miss. The cross jubilee is a dark and evil and satanic moment. We're meant to see that. In fact, that's why it goes dark over the whole land in the middle of the day as the sun stops shining. That's why there's nails and whips and blood and screams in this story. As Jesh and Jemima's dance school, uh, Jesh and Jemima's dance school, they're, they're putting on C.S. Lewis's amazing story, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Come along. It's happening in July. But, and it's a representation, if you like, of Jesus' crucifixion right at the end. And what's fascinating is the one who kills Aslan, the great lion, is the evil white witch with howls of delight from all her ghoulish allies, the book reads. Now, we're not meant to over-exaggerate Satan's power, but we also should never underestimate his power either. We must be vigilant. That's why we prayed through Ephesians 6 last Sunday at our first 2023 prayer meeting. Jubilee, this new year, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power he's because he's already defeated Satan. We know that. So you can be strong. However, put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not only against flesh and blood, but Satan himself. So they're certain. Secondly, who done it? His friends. His friends. 
The obvious one is Judas, as he betrays Jesus during his arrest at the garden, as we've just read. But also Peter, when he denies that he ever knew Jesus, and he wept outside bitterly. The other disciples all quickly follow suit when they run away in Jesus' hour of need. I tell you what I find fascinating, though. The Gospels tell us that neither of them knew what they were doing. When you read all the Gospels, go ahead and do it. It's fascinating the way it talks about it. Just here in verse, uh, earlier on in verse 20, the Passover meal, uh, Passover meal, when Jesus tells them, truly, I tell you, one of you will betray me. And their response was, they were very sad and began to say to him, one after the other, surely you don't mean me, Lord. That sounds slightly odd to me. Other versions are even odder, as in gospel versions. Why didn't Jesus, Judas know? But actually, when you really think about it, sin does this. Sin blinds us to the truth. Judas is trying to rationalize things here in his fleshly reason, and he's thinking, this is all going pear-shaped. I need to take the situation into my own hands. Someone has to. Jesus is not in control. I'm not sure I can trust him anymore. Judas is walking not by faith, but by sight. Over the years, I've spoken to numerous people telling me that it would be much better if their marriage was over. In fact, some of them even told me that God said this to them. Deluded. There have been relational breakdowns in the church, which quite frankly, just didn't make sense. It was almost as if someone else's words were coming out of these very dear people I loved. That was pretty much my whole home group when I first started. But it wasn't Jesus. It wasn't just Judas who done it. It was Peter too. Sin had tricked Peter into thinking he was invincible, remember? Thumping chest, Peter. I would never betray you. And Jesus puts him into place. Jesus foretells and forewarns Peter of his denial. But then he says this, Luke twenty-two thirty-one: Simon, Simon, he's talking about Simon Peter. Satan has asked to sift all of you as wheat. In other words, the enemy is all over. But I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fall. And when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. In the midst of doubt, God strengthens our faith. As powerful as sin is in our lives, sin does not have the final word. When we repent, turn back, swallow our pride, receive Jesus' bags and bags of endless grace, our indwelling God, God the Holy Spirit, brings forgiveness and freedom and faith. That's one of the reasons we have to rejoice, as Mark shared earlier. You see, the difference between Peter and Judas isn't whether, they're, one has fought, whether they have fallen or not. Both of them fall. We all fall short of the glory of God. The difference is whether they repent, whether we turn back to the God of forgiveness and grace, and as a fruit of that, that is turning away from our sin again, 
Not because I have to. No way. It's because I want to. He's worth it. He's trustworthy. He is reliable in my life all of the time. I know that. So there's Satan. There's his friends. Who else is, who else is Jesus handed over by? Who else done it, if you like? Well, it's his enemies. <coughs> what we've read so far, and there's more in the next chapter, are the various trials and arrest scenes that Jesus is led through one by one before his crucifixion. Firstly, Jesus is handed over to the Roman soldiers. Then he's handed over to the Sanhedrin, the Jewish council. Then by the Jewish council to Pilate, from Pilate to Herod, and then back to Pilate. And finally, he's handed over to the will of the mocking, raging crowds. And interestingly, Matthew and Luke in the Greek use the same word, handover, handed over, to describe all these different transfers, if you like. Why? I think it's because he wants us to see that although these different people are oceans apart from one another, all doing different things, they have all played their part in the killing of Jesus. And do you know what? So have we. As Martin Luther once said, we carry his nails in our pockets. The late John Stott writes this, we may try and wash our hands of responsibility like Pilate, but our attempts will be futile, as futile as his, for there is blood on our hands. My sin your sin put Jesus on the cross. Fact. Another theologian writes, unless, you, uh, unless you're deeply aware of your sin and of what an affront it is to God's holiness and how impossible it is for him to respond to this sin without anything but furious wrath, you will never appreciate grace, his undeserved favor to you. And it will never be amazing to you unless you get that. Only those who are truly aware of their sin can truly cherish grace. Listen, if you're not a Christian here this morning, when God looks at you as his very own child and sees all the disregard and dishonor and disobedience towards him, his heart aches. He's rightly angry. I would be like that with joy if he did the same to me. But can you be vulnerable this morning? Can you let down all of the defenses? Can you come out from behind the wall that you're hiding away and say, Jesus, forgive me. I want you. I need you. I cannot live this life any longer on my own. If that's you, if that's you, I'd love to speak to you, pray with you, talk about it a bit more at the end of the service. I'd love to do that. Jesus is handed over by Satan. Jesus is handed over by his friends. Jesus is handed over by his enemies. But finally, fourthly, probably most mysteriously, particularly if you're not from a Christian faith background, Jesus is handed over by God. He done it. 
Last week, Simon described Jesus' torment in the Garden of Gethsemane. Remember what he said? Jesus was in grief. Jesus was breaking down. He asked God, his Father, to take this cup away from me. And one of the most jaw-dropping, baffling, and mysterious lines in the whole Bible comes from the lips of Jesus Christ next. He says, not my will be done, but yours, Father. Did you hear that? It is the will of the Father that Jesus went to the cross to be crucified. The Father's choice, the Father's decision, the Father's responsibility above all others. It says in uh, Isaiah 53, Isaiah puts it like this, but he, the coming Messiah, the coming King, Jesus, but he was pierced for our rebellion, crushed for our sins. He was also beaten so that we could be whole. He was whipped so that we could be healed. All of us, all of us like sheep have strayed away. We have left God's path to follow our own here. Yet the Lord laid on him instead of us all the sins of us all. He was oppressed and treated harshly, yet he never said a word. We just saw that. He was like a lamb led to the slaughter. And as a sheep is silent before his shearers, he did not open his mouth. He had done no wrong. He had never deceived anyone. Listen. But it's the Lord's good plan to crush him and cause him grief. This is quite uncomfortable, isn't it? This has caused tension and distaste among some Christians that have kind of wanted to reject this truth, these, this reality in the Bible. In fact, some people have called it cosmic child abuse. But sadly, they've not read their Bibles closely enough. Jesus wasn't a child. He was a mature adult making deliberate, prayerful, spirit-filled choices. As John 10 puts it, just as the Father knows me and I know the Father, Jesus says, I lay down my life for the sheep. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up. Not only was he not a child, he was not a mere human. He was God. The divine son, this is no helpless victim. Jesus is the father's equal. Jesus went willingly. Jesus outlasted, outmaneuvered, and outthought every group, every power on his road to the cross. Jesus wanted to. But not just that, mostly he just outloved everybody. Jesus in the garden had one agenda that superseded all the other agendas of all the others, Satan, his friends, his enemies. Jesus' heart was to die for love. Love for you. Love for me. Whoever you are, whatever you think, whatever you've done and will do in the future, he loves you. He loves you that much. Friends, brothers, sisters, this is the greatest who done it of all time. Do you see that? As it says in C.S. Lewis's The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe again, wrong will be right when Aslan comes into sight. At the sound of his roar, sorrows will be no more. 
when he bears his teeth, winter meets its death. And when he shakes his mane, we shall see spring again. Jubilee, do not weep. See the lion, the Aslan of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He really has. The band could come up. That would be really helpful. I'd like to end by all of us reciting what's, what's come to be known as the Apostles' Creed. My Anglican friends say it week in, week out. From the earliest days of the church, Christians developed short, simple summaries of faith. If you could play some background music, that would be really helpful, guys. Thanks. From the earliest days of the church, Christians developed short, simple summaries of faith. These short statements became known from the Latin word credo, I believe and trust. That's what creed means. They were written to be said out loud together to strengthen you and me, the church. And so why don't we stand and why don't we faithfully, powerfully, with a conviction of faith, say these words? Slowly. I, I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He ascended to the dead. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven. He is seated at the right hand of Father. And he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the holy, universal Catholic Church, the communion of sins, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and life everlasting. Amen. Let's give our Jesus applause and worship and shouts. Let's worship.